I appreciate you putting the picture of Chicago on the screen there for me. Actually, that's not Chicago. I believe that's Taipei, right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Psalms are divided into five books. We're going to be in Psalm 90 tonight, by the way. And uh, each book of the five, for example, the first book is, includes chapters 1 through 42. Each book of the five ends with a doxology. Psalm 90 is the first psalm of the fourth book of the psalms. Of the, of the uh, psalms that are included in book number four of the psalms, Psalm 90 through 106, uh, all but three are anonymous. Uh, the only ones that ha- we have a record of who wrote them were Psalm 101, 103, written by David, and Psalm 90, written by Moses. Now, that might sound strange to you, because when you think of Moses, you don't think of Moses writing a psalm. You think of Moses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and writing that. And, uh, but if you look at the heading of Psalm 90, what does it say there? Right at the beginning, it says what? A prayer of Moses, the man of God what it says. And so we believe Moses wrote this psalm. Now, many critics of the Bible, as usual, try to say that's not the case at all because they like to try to disprove the Bible. But we who believe the Bible believe that Moses wrote this. It's good enough for us that it says, Moses, the prayer of Moses, the man of God. And since Moses wrote this psalm, it is the oldest psalm there is. Uh, He wrote it during, obviously, his time. This is not the only poem or poetry, and psalms are poetry, written by Moses. Moses wrote a, uh, something called in Exodus 15, after the <clears throat> deliverance from, uh, through uh, the Red Sea, he wrote something called what, what is called the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, or rather the Song of the Sea. And then in Deuteronomy 30, 32, he wrote what is called the Song of Moses. Now, it's interesting that Psalm 90 and Deuteronomy 32 and 33, where he wrote the Song of Moses, have a similar, similar vocabulary and similar phrases. And so it, more, it also confirms the authorship of Moses in Psalm 90. <clears throat> what is the background for this psalm? Well, there's different views, but basically it's the wilderness wanderings in the time of, uh, of the first five books, of the first, or Exodus through Deuteronomy, the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. Some would think it more pinpoints around Numbers 14 or Numbers 20. Nevertheless, it's the general time when they wandered in the wilderness. That is the background for this, book, for this, for this psalm. You would, it, it would stand to reason Moses is drawing upon his experience in the wilderness. So he writes about that, or that is the background for this, rather. The psalm is called a prayer of Moses. It gives us some insight into the relationship that Moses had with God. He's called a man of God here in the, in the inscription to the psalm. He's described that way in many places. Deuteronomy 33, Joshua 14, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra. Many times Moses is called a man of God, and he truly was that. Was there ever a man that had as close communion with God as Moses did? As, as you read through the first five books of the Bible, you can see that. He was chosen of God through this unique experience of the burning bush, called by God to do his work. He was attested to by God when there was a rebellion against his authority. God intervened for him. He represented God before the people. And so in the truest sense of the word, Moses is called a man of God here. And what do men of God do? They pray, right? This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And what do women of God do? They pray. So you can see that, and it'll be interesting as we look into this prayer of Moses to get some insight into one of his prayers here. 
<clears throat> and you can see as you read the first five books of the Bible, Moses praying for his people again and again as he's with them. Well, in this psalm, there are three main emphases given in the, in the prayer of Moses. First of all, Moses recognizes God in, God's immortality in verses 1 and 2. Moses recognizes God's immortality or his eternality. God's eternal. He's immortal. As the song said, immortal and visible. He says in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in, in what? In all generations. You've always been our dwelling place. In Deuteronomy 33, which is similar to this chapter a little bit in, in different ways, Moses says it a little differently. He says the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So this emphasis on God being eternal and everlasting in that verse. Moses says that God has been our dwelling place. The word means our habitation, our home. It's where we would, where we would properly dwell. It has the idea of refuge, this idea of dwelling place, or a place of safety or security. Isn't our home to be, isn't it supposed to be a place of security and refuge? Isn't that the general idea? I know in America it's not that way, but that's the way it's supposed to be. And if anyone understood that this idea of a dwelling place or the lack of a dwelling place, it was Moses. He was truly a man without a country. He grew up in Egypt, and then he had to flee Egypt. He went to Midian for some time left there, and then he wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And his people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then he never was allowed to go into the promised land. So he, he was a man without a home, a man without a country. And he understood what this was. When he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place, he understands what it means to have a real dwelling place, or, or not to have one, rather. And so he looks to God, and he says, God, you are my dwelling place. You are my permanent home. You're the place, you're where I want to dwell. I want to dwell with you. And so he says, God is our dwelling place. He learned that he could find security and comfort in God, even if he couldn't find it in, in this world. In, 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 on this earth, with the people he was with, certainly didn't find it with them, but he could find it in God. If you, as you read through the first few books of the Bible, you can see that as they're on their journey through the wilderness, they're pitching their tent <coughs> periodically, temporarily in a place, and then God says, I want you to pull up your tent as he leads them with the uh, pillar of fire and cloud. And I want you to go somewhere else. And they, and they go somewhere else and they pitch their tent again and temporarily dwell there. It's always temporary. There's no permanent dwelling place for Moses on the earth. There's no earthly security. It's always, let's get up and move again. But Moses finds his security in God. That's where he finds his refuge, his place of refuge. And he attests in this psalm to the faithfulness of God. Now, if you go to the New Testament, you'll see Jesus didn't promise earthly security either. Uh, when a man came up to him and said, I'll follow you, he says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As Mike said one time in one of his sermons, Jesus was homeless. And so he didn't have any earthly security here. Jesus didn't either. But where did the Lord Jesus find his place of security? He found it in communion with the Father. Over and over again he does that. And most people are seeking security in this life, in what they can find in this life. But they completely ignore the true source of security, which is refuge in the Lord. And the Lord is not only a, place, a dwelling place for Moses, but also for us, yes, in the 21st century, who can read this psalm. And we can learn also that God is our place of refuge, our dwelling place. 
We're to find our security in God. Find your security in Him. We're always looking for it here and what we can get out of this life. But ultimately, our security is not in a relationship even. Although we, have, we, have, we love our, our relatives. It's not necessarily in a friendship, although we have great friends. Our security is not in our bank account. It's not in our job, although you may have a, a great job. But your security ultimately is in God. That's where it is. Why is it in God? Because God is immortal. He's eternal. He's not subject to change as, as everything else in this world is always changing. God's immortal. He's the dwelling place He's our dwelling place in every generation since the world began, it says here. He's our rock, the one that's faithful to us. And he's proven his faithfulness in the past, and Moses talks about that. And he's, and he, and he's faithful to us now, even in the present. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, before the mountains were born. Look at the imagery here. Before the mountains were born. Or you gave birth, Lord, to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The picture is here, uh, here is of giving birth. God gave birth to the earth and to the world. Vast universe that we have, he gave birth to it. In other words, he created it. But it's the idea of giving birth here that's, that's brought across. The mountains are spoken of as having been born. They're like babies that, that are born by God. They're, they're created by God. They're his creation. Have you ever stood at the, in the valley maybe and looked up at a towering mountain? and you're just awed by the beauty and the majesty of these mountains, and you look at them and you say, wow, especially if you're from Florida and you go to a place where you see mountains, you look up and you say, how majestic and fantastic, unbelievable are these mountains, and you realize God created them. He birthed them. Who alone could create all this except for the immortal God? There was nothing at one time, and then God spoke the word, and the mountains came forth, and the earth came forth, and the world, the vast world came forth. But before that, there was just God, nothing else. And he was God when there was no earth. And he was God when he created the earth. And he will be God when the earth is burned up. And he will be God when there's a new heavens and a new earth. And so it says, as the text says in verse 2, even from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Always. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's the only God. And in these verses, Moses recognizes the immortality of God. And then in verses 3 to 12, in his prayer, Moses confesses, that, confesses man's mortality. He confesses man's mortality. In other words, man's frailty, man's fragility, man's finiteness, man's weakness. Man is weak, finite being, <clears throat> sinful being, limited in, in all that we do, totally depraved. There's not a, a part of us that hasn't been marred by depravity. And so Moses confesses that man is immortal, contrasted to God who's immortal. In comparison to God, we are nothing. We have these puny scientists that come around with their puny theories of origins, that so-called scientists. I don't, I don't call that science when you're, when you're coming up with a theory that isn't, isn't even uh, credible, in my opinion, at all. And they say that God is a myth and that heaven's you know, a myth, and heaven's a fairy tale that was said by a, a scientist. And, and, they, and people look at them and they think they're brilliant. These are brilliant men because they've said these statements and they have this, this other view of evolution. But Romans 1 speaks to those who have rejected God. It says in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, it says. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men 
And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And as you read Psalm 90, verses 3 to 12, you can see the differences between God and men. I don't care who the guy is that thinks he's so brilliant out there. God is, he's nothing to God at all. His wisdom, is, his intelligence is nothing to God. Look at the contrast between God's sovereignty and our mortality in verses 3 to 6. <clears throat> God is sovereign, we're mortal. Verse, verse 3 says, you turn, it says to God, <clears throat> Moses does in his prayer, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. God is sovereign over the life and death of human beings. He's sovereign over all that. You turn man back into dust and you say, return, O children of men. In other words, return to the dust from where you came. You're going to die. God decreed that man would die. That's his, his judgment. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall, it shall die. It's not that we just pass away. Someone just passed away, we say. <coughs> it's rather that God has placed this judgment upon us. Genesis 3, after the fall of man, it says in Genesis 3.19, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. That's what he's saying here. Because from the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And it says in Psalm 93, God says to man, you turn man back into dust, and he says, return, O children of men, to the dust from where you came. You're going to die. This is true of all of us unless the Lord returns. We're going to die. We're frail creatures. We're dust. The sovereign and powerful God says to, says to frail, fragile man, you're but dust. Return to dust. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight and in God's sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. <clears throat> you know, in our estimation, a thousand years is a long time. That's a millennium. We think, man, that's such a long time. A lot of things can happen in a thousand years. Think through history of the things that happen in 1,000 years. Dynasties come and go in a thousand years. Kingdoms can rise and fall in a thousand years or less. World wars can be fought and the history of nations can be changed in in far less than a thousand years. But to God, a thousand years is just like yesterday, which came and went. You know, I remember yesterday, as I stand here now, I, I think about what happened yesterday. I think last night I went to Stephen's house. We heard the guys play guitars together. I got to see the grandchildren. That was a great time. But it's gone. That was 24 hours. It's all, it's all gone. It's history now. That was yesterday. And now we're in today. In 24 hours, yesterday was over. And today, soon today will be yesterday. It's like now you see it, now you don't. Genesis 5 tells us that Methuselah lived to be 969 years of age. Can you imagine living almost 1,000 years? 969 years of age. You might you say, well, maybe I'll live to be 69 years of age, 79, 89. 99, but 969, think about this. If you were born in 1000 A.D., if Methuselah had been born in 1000 A.D., he would have lived to 1969. Did I have the math correct on that one? Even after I thought about it, I wondered if the math was right on that. 1000 and 1969. That's a long time. Think about that. That's how long he lived. Moses lived 120 years. What is that to God, though? It says in the text here, it's like yesterday, which is already over, a thousand years. Like yesterday, which is already over. It's nothing to him at all. To us, it's a big deal. There's another comparison here in verse 4. The thousand years are like a watch in the night. 
a watch in the night. A night watch lasted about three or four hours long. So a thousand years to God is like three or four hours to us. It's nothing at all. Second Peter 3.8, with the Lord, <clears throat> one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. We wonder, why is it taking the Lord so long to come back to us? Does he know it's been, it's, it's 2012 now, it's been all this time. But time is not a big deal to God and his thinking, his reckoning compared to the way we see it. It's a big deal to us, but it's not to him. It's nothing at all. Verse 5, God continues the comparison of God's sovereignty and our mortality. It says, he says to God, and Moses does, <clears throat> you have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. Just as a flood comes and suddenly wipes everything out that was there, such is the brevity of life. Ryan spoke about this <clears throat> recently in, in James chapter 4, brevity of life. Our life sweeps past us as a flood sweeps all that was in its wake away. Whereas there was a village there at one time, the flood came in, wiped it all out, there's nothing left at all now. And that's how life is, just like that. Here today, gone tomorrow. And they said they fall, they fall asleep, which is a euphemism for death. They, they die. We all die. People die. Death follows our brief life. Note the comparison of, of, of life with grass in verse 5. <clears throat> it says there, In the morning they are like grass, people are, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. It's interesting we're compared to grass. We're not compared to mighty oaks. He doesn't compare us to the cedars of Lebanon, which he talks about often in the Old Testament, those stately cedars of Lebanon everybody wanted to have a, a part of. He doesn't talk about us compared to that. He says, no, we're compared to grass. In Israel, after a few hot days of weather, what was green grass can become brown and parched and die quickly. It could be green grass today and dead grass tomorrow. And that's how life is. We're green for a little while. We flourish thinking that we're immortal. Isn't that true? People think they're immortal. When you're young, you think, well, I've got my whole life ahead of me. Whereas we don't know what the day may bring forth, tomorrow may bring, bring forth at all. Many young people don't seem to hardly give a second thought to death at all or think about eternity. But when our short lives come to an end, then we'll realize we're not so more immortal after all. We thought we were, but we're not. <clears throat> so God, Moses compares God's sovereignty and our mortality. He contrasts, in verses 7 through 10, he contrasts, there's a contrast between God's righteousness <clears throat> and our sin. God's righteousness and our sin, verse 7 says, <clears throat> we have been consumed by your anger, by your wrath we have been dismayed. Think about this for a minute. The immortal God never sins. Scripture says about God, you are pure eyes and to behold evil. God, in First John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God doesn't sin. He's righteous, perfectly so. Jesus never sinned. First Peter 2.22, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. But us, totally different from God, we're born in sin. We pursue sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We run from God. We want nothing to do with his holiness. We're trying to get away from him and away from his word. And we don't want to hear preaching of the word. And so, as a result of sin, God brings his judgment. That's what he promised he would do. And our sin is ultimately the cause for our physical death, ultimately the cause for hell that follows those who, don't, who refuse God or reject him. Verse 7 says, we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed, it says. word dismayed is interesting. It means that which is disturbing or that which is terrifying. 
The wrath of God is something that just disturbs us greatly. If we really saw it on display, we would realize how disturbing it is. It's terrifying to be under the wrath of God is what Moses is saying. Terrifying to face his wrath. Now, why is Moses saying, we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been disturbed or terrified? Why is he talking about this as if they had personally experienced it themselves? It's because they have. They had personally experienced it. What happened to Israel while they were wandering around in the desert? They were rebelling. The first generation was rebelling against God or rebelling against him. So he had no choice eventually but to unleash his anger and his wrath against them. And he did again and again. God is holy. He won't tolerate sin forever. He's forgiving and merciful and kind and long-suffering, but not forever. So he, ju- he's, he judges sin eventually. And that's what happened. Israel was especially fond of provoking God to anger in the wilderness. You see it again and again. <clears throat> As you look through this, these passages, Exodus 32, Moses is on Mount Sinai talking to God, and, 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 and what, what happens? The people make a golden calf. <clears throat> and what does God say to Moses? He says in Exodus 32, 7, The Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them. My anger may burn against them that I will destroy them. I will make of you a great nation. And so God's anger burns. He unleashes his wrath. And as a result, 3,000 people end up dead that day. It's nothing to be played with or toyed with at all, God's wrath and his anger. And then you go over to Leviticus chapter 10, and you see Aaron's sons. It says in in Leviticus 10.1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. They're serving the Lord in the temple, in the ministry, in in the tabernacle. And after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And God says, those who serve me are going to treat me as holy or else. He says in the next verse. So the wrath of God is on display here. God's no respecter of person. persons here. And the sons of Aaron learn this. God, our God is a consuming fire, as it says in Hebrews. <clears throat> and then you see in Numbers chapter 11, another instance of the wrath of God. Numbers 11, 1, the people became like those who complain of adversity. Complaining, always complaining. In the hearing of the Lord, when the Lord heard, heard it, his anger was kindled. Anger was kindled. The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So God again, showing his wrath, his anger. Moses knows all about this. He's seen it. So he's able to talk about, pray about this in Psalm 90. <clears throat> Same chapter, Numbers 11, the people are... Again, complaining about not having meat to eat. Verse 31, God says, okay, I'll send them quail. He sends them quail. This people, people spend all day and night, all the next day, gathering quail to eat. <clears throat> Verse 33 says, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So God, again, is showing his anger as he strikes the people. And then you go to Numbers 12, verse 1. 
God, Moses' authority is challenged. They're rebelling against his leadership. And, and it says, as they do that, in verse 9 it says, the anger of the Lord burned against him and he departed. And what did he do with Miriam? She became a lep- leprous of snow. So God's anger, his wrath against them. Numbers 13, the first generation refuses to go to the land of Canaan. And God says, your corpses are going to fall in the wilderness. And Hebrews 3 says of that, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Angry. With, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You, you see Korah's rebellion that brought a plague from God that killed 14,000 as you go on. Numbers 20, Moses himself sins against God by striking, striking the rock twice and, brings, and dis, dishonors God with it. And God says, you're not going to go in the promised land either. <clears throat> so God showing his anger and his wrath against the people. Yes, Moses knew all too well of the wrath and anger of God. He has seen it on display again and again and again in the wilderness. He saw it firsthand. God is righteous. We are sinful. The contrast is stark. It's definite. It's sure. How different we are from God, aren't we? Totally different from God. And the Bible has a message for those who rebel against Christ and refuse him. It says in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on the one who does not know Christ and rejects him. That's a terrifying thing to experience the wrath of God. Moses could tell you about that. But those who do not know Christ will experience his wrath one day. But let's remember for those of us who do know Christ, we won't experience that wrath because Christ on the cross experienced the wrath of God in his fullness. At that time. So for us, that wrath of God has been taken away. We're thankful for that. Look at verse 8. Hopefully, if my voice will make it. I don't know what's going on with the voice thing. Verse 8. It says here, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He says, our our iniquities are are before you. Iniquity is is to make the straight path of God a crooked one, to go off the path and distort, distort his commands and and pervert his commands. And we've committed these iniquities before you, Moses says, but are these iniquities out of God's reach? <coughs> he says, no, they're in, right in front of him. It says in verse 8, you have placed our iniquities right before you. God's well aware of our iniquities, even secret sins he's aware of. It says that our secret sins are in the light of your presence. In other words, even our secret sins are committed in the light of God's presence. It's just as if we can't hide this from God. At all. We think we're getting away with sin, but we're not because God has full knowledge of the sin and sees it. God's face here in this verse <clears throat> is compared to a light or lamp that exposes the darkness around it. And so it says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light and him is no darkness at all. No secrets before God, none at all. There's no more powerful light than the light of the presence of his, of his face. So he knows the thoughts of our heart. He knows the deeds that we do when we're alone. He sees all. He knows all. Nothing escapes his attention. God is righteous. Again, we're sinful. (coughs) Verse 9. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. Again, Moses experienced and the people experienced the fury of God, right? And so, to end your years with a sigh could, could mean this. Could mean that the weakness that often overtakes a person at the end of his life. And so, the sigh is like a painful moan. He moans out as he is in his last days. He's hurt and he's weak in pain. And this is the effects of sin upon us. This is what happens in our lifetime. 
Verse 10 says, as, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. A normal lifespan is 70 years or so. And, 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 but in that time, they lived longer even. Moses lived to be 120. Aaron, 123. Joshua, 110. They lived a long time. But normally 70 years, or maybe 80 or so, if due to strength. In other words, God may bless you with exceptionally good health. may live longer. I think someone said this morning their grandmother was 96 or so. may live a little longer than 70 years or so or 80. But shorter or longer, it doesn't matter. Our life is brief still, right? It's still brief. And it talks about the pride in verse 10. Their pride is but labor and sorrow. Even in our life, even in the prime of our life, our lives are marked with suffering with labor, with sorrow. Now, labor is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Work is ordained of God, but he's talking about the struggles a worker goes through, the frustrations that are involved in work. Work is ordained by God, a good thing. There's frustrations in our work. Just as it says in Genesis 3, Moses, uh, God said, by the sweat of your brow you shall earn your bread. And work can often be frustrating and full of problems and difficulties and miscommunications, and it goes on and on and on with work. And our lives are marked by sorrow as well, all kinds of sorrows. We heard one tonight, the death of this 46-year-old who didn't even make it to 70 years of age. Sorrow involving sickness, sorrow involving physical pain. There's some in here tonight with physical pain they live with. Difficult. Sorrow in our relationships. Sorrow in our, maybe in financial setbacks. Sorrow with maybe wayward children. Sorrow on the job with problems. All kinds of disappointments and death. Life is marked by that, those things. Now, I'm not talking now about the proper response of the Christian to things that are sorrowful or difficult in life. I'm just talking, Psalm 90 is talking about the realities of life. Life is a difficult thing, filled with problems. And he says in verse 10, For soon it is gone. Life is gone and we fly away. It's gone and we fly away. It's gone. Our life, the years of our life pass quickly and we fly away. Moses compares life to a bird that lands somewhere and then flies off quickly. <clears throat> Years ago, Sandy put some bird feeders in our backyard, and I, wasn't in, I didn't care about birds at all. But I noticed, you know, she'd look out the window, look at the cardinal landing on the bird feeder back there. And I'm like, who cares about the cardinal back there? <laughs> but after a while, I started looking at the cardinal also, <clears throat> and the bluebird and the woodpecker and all that. <laughs> And now I'm over. I'm, Sandy, look what just landed on the bird feeder back here. And i tell you something about that, though. <clears throat> you better catch it quick. You better watch the bird when he lands quick because he's not there very long, and he's all twitchy, and then he takes off quickie, quickly, and that's it. And that's how life is. It's, it's, it's quick. It goes by fast. It doesn't last very long. That's how life is described here. Job 7, 6 says something similar. It says, Job says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They're swift, our days. Life is uncertain, it's fleeting, it's going by, it's going by. It's uncertain. And so the distance between us and God continues to widen as we see this chapter. God is sovereign over man, while man is merely immortal. God is perfectly righteous and holy, while man is perfectly sinful and unholy. And as a result of the fall, our lives are brief and they end in death. And we're judged by God. It sounds very bleak, doesn't it? As we look at all this, it sounds very bleak. But Moses is moving toward an application of truth for the, in, in our lives here. Look at verses 11 and 12. 
This is a call to examine ourselves in the light of God's nature. A call to examine ourselves in the light of God's nature in verses 11 and 12. He says in 11, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Moses was well aware of the fury of God's anger as we've looked at some of the instances already. He knew all about it. He witnessed more funerals than he cared to deal with. Funeral after funeral after funeral. It just never ended, it seemed like. All of them died except for uh, Joshua and Caleb over those 40 years uh, in, the, in the first generation. Moses is surrounded by death on every hand. He, he says, who knows the power of your anger? But no one really knows the full extent of God's power, how far he could go with it. The Net Bible translate this verse, translates this verse like this. Who can really fathom the intensity of your anger? Nobody can understand that fully. But we need to understand this, that God is the God of judgment. Whatever, wherever, he's a God of love, we know that, God of mercy and kindness, but he's a God of judgment as well. And for people to know that will help them to put life in perspective. The, the, the message of the judgment of God was one that pastors in former generations used to preach. Guys like Jonathan Edwards used to preach it strong and hard and unyielding. And people would realize, I'm under the judgment of God. And you have to wake up to the truth of their life's brief and they're, they're, they're going to be judged by God. Nowadays, that kind of preaching is rare. At the end of the verse 11, it says, Your fury according to the fear that is due you. In other words, <clears throat> the fury of God is what causes people to fear God. His fury, his wrath unleashed, causes people to fear him. So we're to warn people of the coming of judgment of God, aren't we? We're to warn them of hell. We're to warn them of the, to flee the wrath to come. And so we're to, we're to be those that would warn others about this. This concept of the judgment of God will cause people to, to turn and evaluate their lives. And so in light of all this truth about the immortality of God, about the frailty of man, the mortality of man, about the sin and judgment of man, Moses gives this application in verse 12. What a great verse this is. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> he says, Moses says here in his prayer, So Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In light of all this that we've seen about God and man, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And as Ryan, I think, referred to this passage in, in the James 4 message, this is exactly <clears throat> what the rich fool in Luke 12 did not do. The rich fool said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God's answer to him, You fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. We don't ever know what's going to happen. That's not the way we're to do business here. Many people ignore God and live as if there is no God. They ignore them completely and do whatever they want to. Plan their lives out. Uh, here's my plan for my life. I'll plan it out. This is what I'm going to do, just like James 4. And they, they think they're sovereign. <clears throat> what does Moses says here, say here? He says to the Lord, teach us to number our days. Help us to know how few of them there really are. We're not here very long. We don't know how long we're here for. <clears throat> we may be here, be here much less than 70 years even. No, nobody knows what tomorrow brings forth, as I said. And so life is brief. Don't be, be so busy with the distractions of life that you forget about the brevity of life. Why, why are we even here? To, to, to run around in circles like a chicken with our head cough? Is that why we're here? Or are we here to do something for God? He says, help, help us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I like the poem. I, <clears throat> it's not one of those silly poems. It's one I've always liked. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's a true poem. 
We're not here very long. What are we going to do for Christ while we're here? How are we going to live while we're here? We have to make each day count, don't we? Ephesians 5.16 says to make the most <clears throat> of your time, to make the most of the opportunities that are there in front of us. That doesn't mean we don't ever have relaxation or recreation. Those things are necessary. But it means we value our time. We realize the importance of time. So Moses says, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That we may live in a wise way before you. That we, our lives may be governed by the wisdom of God. A heart of wisdom is a heart <clears throat> that is following God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? A heart of, of, that, of wisdom is a heart that meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. It's a heart that seeks the will of God above our own. It is a heart that focuses <coughs> on the spiritual needs of others. <coughs> That's what a heart of wisdom is. Let me ask you a question. Do you take the time to number your days to think about the brevity of life and where you're at right now and what you're doing right now and your relationship to God and where you're headed spiritually? Do you take the time to do that? Do you realize the mortality of your own soul if you thought about that? In the midst of all your plans for the future, have you thought about, I'm a mortal soul, I'm not here for very long? Are you seeking to present to God a heart of wisdom? Is that what you're trying to do? We must come to the place where we learn to evaluate the brevity of life, evaluate our life, and, we, and learn to invest it in eternity. And by the way, that applies to those without Christ, especially and those with Christ, th- those who know Christ, it applies to the young as well as the old. Everybody is to number their days so they can apply their hearts to wisdom. So Moses confesses, confesses man's mortality. And then lastly, in verses 13 to 17, Moses prays for a restoration to God's favor. A restoration of God's favor. <clears throat> it says in verse 13, Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. Moses has been speaking of the sin of the people and the judgment of God. Now he appeals to God's mercy. He says, do return, O Lord, how long? In other words, come back to us, return, come back to us from your anger. Show mercy upon us once again. Have pity upon us once again. How long must we suffer apart from your your mercy? How long must must we wait for your mercy to be shown again? He says, we need your mercy upon us, O Lord. And he says, be sorry for your servants. Now, isn't it interesting with all the sin and judgment that Moses still says that the Israelites are the servants of God? These are still his people. They rebelled against God, but God had not forsaken them. And ultimately, he would never disown them. Mike talked about the divorce of of Israel today. Ultimately, he'll never disown them is, is the point here. And so Moses knows that although God will judge sin, he's a God of mercy, a God of compassion, and he pleads for God's mercy. Verse 14, another great verse. <clears throat> oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. Morning is probably a metaphor here for a time of renewal after a time of affliction. They've been afflicted, they've been judged. And Moses says, we need a time of renewal now. You know, sometimes night can be a <clears throat> frightening experience or a miserably long experience. Maybe you're sick at night. And, and, and maybe things are bad at night. And or maybe you're lonely at night or something, and you're wishing for the morning light. You can't wait till morning gets here. And Moses kind of uses that as a metaphor. We need this time of, re- of renewal after this time of affliction, Lord. He says, satisfy, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. 
Your loving kindness, that steadfast, loyal love, faithful love of God. We need that, Lord. We know you're faithful to us. Satisfy us with this, with, the, with that love. You know the only thing that can satisfy you is God himself, as he expresses himself through his loyal love to you. You can only be satisfied ultimately with God. Nothing is more satisfying. This is a true statement. I'm not just saying this. Nothing is more satisfying than walking with, in fellowship with God. There's nothing more satisfying than it. Sin ultimately doesn't satisfy. But God does satisfy. Nothing more satisfying than God himself. So let me ask you this. Where are you seeking your satisfaction at in life? Are you seeking it in God and in fellowship with him? Are you seeking it in some cheap substitute that can never satisfy your soul? Or God, the person of God? And what is the result of being satisfied with God? He says that we may sing sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfaction with God brings joy and brings singing and brings happiness and brings gladness to your life. Isn't this the point that Piper has made in many of his books? Be satisfied with God. This is where our joy is. Seek joy in God. Over and over again he talks about this. And this is what satisfaction with God does. It brings joy and gladness. Spurgeon said this, When the Lord refreshes us with his presence, our joy is such that no man can take it from us. Nobody can take that from us. We're able then to sing, right, for joy and to be glad and happy in the Lord. Verse 15, what Moses prays, Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. He says, Lord, you've made us sad and afflicted us because of our sins. We deserve that judgment. He says, now restore us to your favor. In the proportion to the days you've afflicted us, now we want you to bless us. We need the blessing of God, uh, God upon us. Moses has seen the adversity of, from God long enough, right? He's longing for the blessing of God now. And in verse 16, he says, Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. There's that word servants again, again right? He calls, them, he calls them the servants of God again, even though they've been judged again and again. It's almost as if God, Moses is reminding God, Don't forget we're your servants. <laughs> And so Moses prays for God's work to appear to his servants. He wants the power of God to be displayed, the work of God to be displayed, so that the servants of God can be encouraged by God. Isn't it true that when God is at work, people are encouraged? When God's truly at work, people in a church, or whether it was with Israel in the Old Testament, God, the people of God are encouraged. And And he prays that the majesty of God would be shown to their children. Who would inherit the promised land? Not the first generation. They failed. They died off in the wilderness. But the children would inherit the promised land. So Moses prays that God's majesty, that the children of, of the first generation would see the majesty and the splendor of God. He prays for that. Let me just tell you this. It's very important to pray for our children. We talk about how do you rear children. Everybody asks that question. Let me tell you a very important aspect of <clears throat> raising children, praying for your children. Whatever else is going on, praying for your children is extremely important. Are you praying for your children? Are you praying that God will show them their sins, that they will understand their sinners? Are you praying that God will show them their need of a Savior in Christ? Are you praying that God will show them His majesty, as, as Moses prayed for here? Are you praying that God will work in their hearts? Are you praying for the children of our church, if you don't have any, that God will work in their hearts? Are you praying for the Children in Omar's class, that God will work in their hearts to show them his majesty. Are you praying that God will be glorified in their lives 
Prayer for our children is extremely important, crucial. And so we must pray for them, and Moses does that here. And in verse 17, finally, he says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, <clears throat> and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. In other words, Lord, we want your approval upon what we're doing here, if we're doing your work. We want your approval upon us, and we want your delight in us. This is a great prayer. Moses is even praying for himself here, even though he can't go in the promised land. He's praying for a restoration of God's favor. And he says, confirm for us the work of our hands. You know, you cannot ask the Lord to bless your work if you're not doing his work, can you? But if you're doing the work of God, then, you can, then go ahead, by all means, ask God to bless the work and to establish it, confirm it, make it successful because you're asking for the blessing upon the work that he wants you to do in that case. And Moses is praying that God will bless them as they do his work. Are you praying that God will establish and bless the work he is doing in this place among the lives of his people? We need the, the blessing of God upon us, and Moses prays that God's favor will be restored to them. So as we look at Psalm 90 tonight, what have we learned? Well, it teaches that through this prayer that God is immortal. It teaches us that we are mortal frail human beings we're sinful we're in need of god we need to confess our sins to god it teaches us to evaluate our short lifespan in light of eternity so that we may live a life that's why a wisdom a life of wisdom before god it teaches us that we need the mercy and grace and blessing of god upon us in order to, in our lives to please him i heard a guy say one time i don't want to live this life without the blessing of god upon me and moses didn't either and so he was always as you look through the you see Moses asking for the blessing of God constantly. I wanted to close out by reading a hymn, and I'm not just doing this, doing this to read a hymn, by Isaac Watts. <clears throat> I don't know what page it is in yours, but it, you don't even have a hymnal, so we don't do hymnals anymore, I guess. <clears throat> oh God, our help in ages past. Isaac Watts wrote this psalm based on Psalm 90. Listen to the words of this and we'll close. Oh God, our help in ages past our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, Short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its suns away. They fly, forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guide while life shall last and our eternal home. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word once again, Psalm 90, what a great blessing it is to us. We pray we'll learn from it, learn that we are nothing before you, that we're to humble ourselves before you, apply our hearts to wisdom, Lord, numbering our days, realizing <clears throat> the shortness of them, realizing we don't know how long we have here, and help us to apply our hearts to wisdom, that we might invest our lives in eternity in the things of God. And we just praise in Christ's name. Amen.